What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Smith, and you are listening to The Wayward Wanderer. So, welcome to the show. As I mentioned before, my name is Ryan Smith, and I am the author of The Way of Fire and Ice, The Living Tradition of Norse Paganism, a book which argues for a radical reinterpretation of heathen and Norse pagan practice that is focused on best serving the needs of the people living in the present in an inclusive anti-fascist way now i guess you could call this my author podcast so i'm just going to introduce myself as well as what you can expect to hear on the rest of this show whether we're talking this episode or future episodes of the wayward wanderer i am a longtime heathen practitioner have been at it for probably around 16 years now, give or take. I mean, I'm having to do math at that point, so that always gets fun. And on top of that, have been a pagan of some kind or another since I first started studying at the tender age of 12. Uh, beyond being a longtime practicing uh, heathen or Norse pagan, I personally use the two almost interchangeably. I know there's people who will disagree with that vehemently. Well, this is my podcast, and I'm speaking for myself. So they can express their disagreements however they like. I am currently finishing up a PhD in modern economic and social history. Specifically, I look into the really weird stuff that financial institutions get up to using oil money and how that's made the economy today. But I do also have a background in early medieval Europe with an emphasis on Scandinavia, along with uh, years of extracurricular research uh, and exploration, including the work that I had to do in preparation for writing and publishing my book. Now, if you are tuning in, 
it, whether it is because you liked my book and you want to find out more or you are looking for more uh, heathen Norse pagan content. I do want to emphasize that my interpretation is one that is very different from some others that you may hear out there. Part of that is, of course, and to be completely upfront, is I guess you could say politically I'm fairly far to the left, like I sit somewhere to the left of Bernie Sanders. Exactly how far entirely depends on the day and what has happened in the news most recently. But suffice it to say, these perspectives as well as my experiences as a pagan and a heathen that are informing where i'm coming from and those are experiences that very strongly argue for an anti-fascist and anti-racist interpretation of practice that is genuinely inclusive for all who are proven capable by their words and actions of respecting others and their existence their dignity they're what it is that makes them who they are this in my opinion does not include white nationalists or fascists or anyone else who argues that heathenry is the sole property of those who they declare to be depending on who you ask white or aryan or peoples of the north or whatever their favorite buzzword happens to be this day. Um, I mean, that it's a, is its own moving target, and there definitely will be a podcast just on that all by itself in the future. But to focus more in the present, it is my experiences with these peoples who argue that basically heathenry should only be for whites and a particular interpretation of whiteness that is extremely well hitler jugend would be a fairly accurate description i think um they certainly wouldn't say it quite so loudly but they're getting a bit more overt about it these days whether you're talking people like stephen mcnallen or the latest uh individual ranting about white genocide on twitter and shouting hail wotan and all the folks in between and it was seeing not just the harm that they did to marginalized people as well as the harm that they were doing to the community and its viability as well as very brutally suppressing what i think is the real beauty and majesty of heathenry and norse paganism that has inspired me for years to oppose these peoples to organize to write uh to speak out and do whatever i can and whatever mediums are most effective to advocate for a truly hospitable and truly inclusive heathenry and it is that these peoples tend to have no problem with using violence to impose their ideas using harassment and force against those they see as undesirables or degenerates that makes it clear that this is not just a question of the harms that I've seen that they've done, but that they represent a movement that is deeply dangerous on every level. And so I feel it's appropriate to get that out of the way up front because that's where I'm coming from. And that's my perspective. I think this is now a good point to get into what is this thing I'm calling heathenry or Norse paganism? And why is this something that is even worth having a podcast about, much less having 
specific interpretations, including this one, which you could call the way of fire and ice or uh, radical practice or fire and ice heathenry or paganism, however you want to do it. It's important to get at what heathenry is. Heathenry is a term that generally refers to modern pagan practitioners who draw their inspiration from the pre-Christian peoples of Scandinavia, specifically the predominantly Norse and Germanic-speaking peoples of the region, though generally heathenry is not just limited to Scandinavians, um, both in terms of practitioners and in terms of sources of inspiration. You can find heathens on pretty much every continent on the planet except possibly antarctica and that's mostly because as far as i know there are no heathen penguins and there has no verification that any of the couple hundred scientists who live there most of the year are uh, heathens of any kind though if any of y'all are feel free to drop me a line so that i can say we are on every continent including in uh, the frozen south but levity aside, heathenry doesn't just focus on Scandinavian sources. It also draws on other Germanic groups, such as the continental Germanics, who were the peoples that lived in modern day uh, ne- the modern day Netherlands, Austria, Germany and also migrated into the British Isles during the fall of the Roman Empire. And of course, there will probably be some kind of broad strokes history episode coming up. But generally speaking, this is where heathenry draws its inspiration from. Now, even though the roots and the point of inspiration that modern heathens and Norse pagans use is ancient, the practice itself is very new. There are a number of different groups who uh, were at least showing an interest in some kind of pagan revivalism in the 19th century going into the early 20th century, although it's debatable as to whether or not you could truly call them part of this modern thing called the pagan religious movement. I argue there is both a significant gap in time as well as as significant differences in terms of interpretations as well as practices that are that mean that you could argue these groups while precursors and influences absolutely do represent something slightly different and sufficiently different to say that it represents sort of an earlier iteration and not a continuity um the actual modern practice itself as far as we can tell from uh, documentation and reliable sources can be traced to the 1960s and 1970s. And this is part of the broader explosion that we see of what is generally called the pagan movement, a collection of nature-based forms of spirituality who drew their inspiration from different forms of pre-Christian myth and polytheism, largely from Europe, but also from uh, certain pol- like cultures in the Mediterranean region, and in some cases, even what's referred to as the Near East or would be sort of modern-day Mesopotamia. 
this movement is one which organically came together from a number of different sources. You've probably heard of if even if you are very new to this community, uh, Wicca and witchcraft, which are the two easily most prominent branches of the pagan religious tree. Um, they're also probably the most widespread in the world today. Um, heathenry, you could say, is while being part of this cluster of religious movements, and there's lots of other groups within this as well, um, whether you're talking uh, modern druidry or specific other like polytheistic revival groups, um, such as like say Hellenic Reconstructionists and the Slavic Reconstructionist movement, these are all groups that you could say are broadly similar in terms of what their orientation is, and that we all do have varying degrees of as well as different ways of reverence for the natural world and also draw on pre-christian sources and ideas but we aren't exactly all the same religion so to speak in the same way that you could say that methodists and lutherans and baptists and catholics are still all christian even though there are differences between them because they all point back to the same bible generally the same deity and a broad shared history and while these different groups that make up the pagan movement definitely share ideas and communicate and broadly do consider themselves part of a similar shared community, they aren't exactly all necessarily branching off of the same source or even necessarily the same perspectives as you may find if you are more familiar with other forms of paganism the perspectives ethical assumptions and sources that you find in heathenry are pretty significantly different both because of a different source of inspiration as well as different applications and interpretations by people living in the present than you may see in for example more traditional forms of wicca or other forms of witchcraft, which are probably, again, easily the most commonly encountered forms of paganism that you will find in the world today. It is better to think of this as sort of a family with broadly shared ideas and practices in the sense of we are almost like cousins to these other different pagan groups than necessarily brothers and sisters of the same practice in the way that you could say the different forms of protestant christianity for example would all be seen as sibling denominations and religious beliefs and traditions so like and it is important to keep this in mind going ahead because there may be things that are surprising about heathen practice that are very different from other forms of pagan practice and there's some things in pagan practice that don't necessarily mesh well in heathenry um and again using pagan as the umbrella term here and speaking generally um but even so there's enough commonality that we could say okay we're all sort of broadly going in the same direction we all work together pretty well and uh sometimes i mean sometimes not but there is, you know, much more room for those kind of, hey, you got chocolate in my peanut butter moments and it tasted great that exists between these different kinds of paganisms. 
Now, within heathenry itself, there are a number of different practices and ideas that exist, as well as different interpretations. And these are, again, representations of uh, people's ideas and approaches. They are, like, we're not saying, I'm not saying here that these are necessarily hard and fast cast in stone points of doctrine, though, for some of these groups, as I'll get into, it absolutely is. And what these represent is more, you could say, different interpretations and perspectives. And by the way, for those who have my book, if some of this is sounding familiar, like some chapter one stuff, well, it is. And that's because it's important to get this stuff out in front and out in the open for everybody. So generally speaking, the probably most well-known, at least in terms of... uh, having a nice name and being visible of the different forms of heathenry is Asatru, which also has offshoots like Vanatru and Rokatru. Um, Asatru is sort of a modern uh, portmanteau of existing Old Norse words that translates generally as faith or practice of the Aesir, which is one of the three groups of gods that exist within scandinavian cosmology now i do also want to point out there's places when i'm emphasizing scandinavian versus other groups that's because this is a thing that comes up in different kinds of heathen race also true is probably the oldest organized in the sense of has come together with a coherent sense of identity onto itself strain of heathenry that exists You could say that its focus is generally on creating a kind of religious practice that would look recognizable to a pre-Christian Norse person. Um, Whether or not this is achieved is something that's up for debate, Um, but generally uh, ritual and practice tends to focus most on interacting with and working with the Aesir, who are the probably some of the most well-known of the Norse gods, which includes Thor odin loki Tyr, and several others um this focus on the aesir did also directly inspire the creation of vanatru and rokatru with vanatru focusing on the vanic deities gods like Freyr, freya and nord and rokatru which emphasizes the jotnar often referred to as the giants which includes beings like surt and yord among many others. Now, generally, we could say historically, Asatru sort of came first, and it does also show influences from a number of different places, including things like the uh, medieval reenactment community, which was a significant influence on several of the early writers. So there is a bit of overlap in terms of direct reconstruction in practice, as well as aspiring to a more generally abstract reconstruction as well um this term reconstruction by the way uh moves well into what you could describe as reconstructionist heathenry which is a bit more of a methodology and a movement than necessarily a cohesive denomination so to speak and reconstructionism coming together as a coherent movement is something that you can see pops up in arguably the 2000s with the rise of social media which made it a lot easier for people to interface 
with each other on a global basis. Reconstructionists strongly emphasize developing and building the faith with as much fidelity and accuracy to the historical and archaeological record as possible. Um, Now, this, again, is also something that's subject to interpretation. There's a wide range of opinions as to what is and is not an acceptable way to apply these kind of facts and ideas that we see from the historical and archaeological record. And this is something that understandably inspires a lot of debate. But generally, within Reconstructionism, the goal is to be able to point directly to this thing we are doing now is something that has a direct antecedent and, where possible, is a direct reconstruction and rebuilding of something that was done in the pre-Christian times. This movement is one that has had considerable influence on many others and arguably i'd say to an extent could be seen as beginning as a reaction to some of what could be perceived of the shortcomings as well as um influences from uh, practices like wicca on osatru with a goal of building something that the practitioners felt was more genuine and authentic for what they were aspiring for Alongside Reconstructionism, and somewhat similar, is what's referred to as Fornsider, which literally translates to the old way or the old practice. Fornsider is a term that comes from modern Scandinavia and tends to focus, well, like Reconstructionism, on working with available sources as much as possible, more on use of folklore as well as having a generally more animistic take on practice. Um, Whether one describes oneself as foreign seether or reconstructionist is, I think, partly dependent on where you are in the world, as foreign seether is a thing that seems to be more popular in Scandinavia itself, Um, though there is certainly some similarities and overlap between the two. And there are also many groups outside of Scandinavia who describe themselves as foreign seether. There is also the Theodish movement, which argues for a very strong reconstruction of Anglo-Saxon pre-Christian spirituality, with emphasis on Anglo-Saxon sources of the peoples who migrated from Saxony and northern Germany into what is now modern-day England some 1,500 years ago, give or take, a decade or two, one way or the other. Um... The there is debate, of course, within the Theodish community as to what extent this is done and how much detail goes into reconstruction. There is an emphasis on an initiatory approach with people starting out and being expected to um, effectively apprentice themselves to an experienced initiate. And there are different levels of initiation that are based on participation in community, learning, and many other things um, that also depend on which particular theod you are part of. Next is the, we could say, probably one of the biggest sources of problems within modern heathenry, though certainly not the only one 
which is referred to by the Southern Poverty Law Center as well as by me as the Neo-Volkish Movement. This represents a collection of very specific groups, including uh, Varg Vikernes' Odalism, Stephen McNallan's Folkish Ossetrum, also referred to as Folkish Heathenry, uh, Elsa Christensen's Odinism, and many other groups who are basically fascist cults that dress up what they do in Scandinavian mythology and aesthetics. And as far as I'm concerned, that's about as far as the relationship goes. Though they are something that is a part of this community spiritually, intellectually, and morally, there are many significant differences between what the Neo-Volkish argue for and what every other heathen group argues for, starting with that all of them are fascists and white nationalists, without exception. These movements argue that heathen and Norse forms of spirituality are the exclusive property of what they refer to as the peoples of the North, or Aryans, or you know, take your pick. They kind of are a moving target around this because they themselves don't especially seem to like getting pinned down on the specifics of what it is they believe because it's part of their recruiting strategies. After all, a lot of people are going to be turned off if you come right out the gate shouting, we are going to impose a jack-booted dictatorship on your face for all eternity and we're going to slap an Odin on top of it. I mean, granted, there are people who do actually seem to like that and quite a few more than one would have thought but that is essentially what it is they're going for these are people who use harassment and in some cases violence and intimidation against people who they perceive as undesirables or race traitors or um those who are beneath them which includes anyone who is part of the lgbt community frequently includes deeply sexist attitudes against women and harassment against anyone who they see as betraying this community needless to say this is a form of practice that's completely at odds with what i'm talking about in my book and on this podcast as well as many other forms of heathen practice as well and while this group could be seen as an outlier in terms of their beliefs many argue that the gods are not actually gods for example and that the other powers like the vitir meaning the spirits of the land around us or the dead are fragments of our genetic unconsciousness than actual entities and fully polytheistic beings onto themselves they nonetheless have thoroughly embedded themselves in part because in the united states they were the first organized groups to form during the 60s and 70s and is within this community and continue to be a significant problem for heathenry today and it is unfortunately safe to say they represent probably between a third and like just shy of half of this community though those numbers are starting to decline thanks to inclusive and anti-fascist groups who are actively organizing against them and for a better community. So, all that said, those are all generally the heathenries that are out there. And now what I'll do is get into what makes this heathenry different. 
from all these other ones. And why the emphasis on radical, inclusive, and anti-fascist are key organizing and ideological points of unity for radical Norse paganism, radical heathenry, the way of fire and ice, whichever term you prefer. Now, generally speaking, most inclusive heathen groups will make their arguments for inclusivity based on three points, and I do not dispute any of these points. I think these are all a good foundation for inclusivity, though certainly more work is needed. And these points are history, hospitality, and we are our deeds. Now, the historical argument points to that these different white nationalist cults that are known as the neo-Volkish movement or Volkish heathenry have no historical basis for their ideas. We have significant archaeological and documented evidence that the pre-Christian peoples of Scandinavia lived in modes of social organization that you could broadly, loosely describe as directly democratic to varying degrees, and certainly had a record of overthrowing and slaying the kinds of iron-fisted dictators that lead these fascist cults. They, while certainly were not paragons of feminism by any stretch of the imagination, at least adhered to gender norms that in many ways gave more autonomy and freedom to women than their contemporaries on the continent in Christian Europe at the time, though again, this is a thing that's much more complicated as you examine the sources, and also, most importantly, existed in a time before the modern concepts of race and nationalism were even a gleam in the eye of weird. So, essentially, the historical argument says because there is no evidence for any of this fascist stuff existing in this period and in the source of inspiration that we point to for all forms of heathenry, and there is significant evidence of practices to the contrary, there is no reason to incorporate these ideas or to accept them as being part of community or practice. The hospitality argument goes further, pointing to the widespread hospitality customs that were very popular well, popular is probably not the right word, more like deeply ingrained in pre-Christian Scandinavian society. Like You could almost argue that this was a form of social support and mutual aid that was just commonly understood as custom. And what is important when we're talking about this from an inclusive perspective is this hospitality had no footnotes, no caveats, no asterisks. No, well, you got here illegally and you don't have the paperwork, so we're not letting you in. It just said, if there is a stranger who comes to your door, or maybe somebody you know, or even, in some cases, an enemy, and they are asking for food and shelter for the night, you give it to them. They're also expected to render assistance around the home and do some labor while they're staying there. But the point was, anyone who was facing the dangers of the wilderness that was pre-modern Scandinavia could expect, unless they had done something truly heinous that caused them to be exiled from a particular community or region, to at least get some kind of basic support and help in surviving. And the kind of compassion and concern this shows for others that 
showed no discrimination as far as we know based on where the person came from or who they looked like or what they looked like or what their particular inclinations were is something that just doesn't gel at all with anything that is in folkish practice. If you're going to be arguing for a racialized form of spirituality, it may work to point to any societies or groups that actually had a history of this kind of exclusion, and we know what that looks like. The Jim Crow South and Apartheid South Africa are both great examples of societies that clearly codified these things in law. And instead, what we have is a group of people who practice something that was radically different and directly at odds with many of these ideas, including things like borders in the modern sense. The final component of inclusive practice is we are our deeds, which is an expression that refers to a very specific verse from the Havamal, one of the surviving sagas of the Scandinavians. And this verse goes, cattle die, kinsmen die, and so you too will die. But one thing I know never dies are the fame of the deeds of the dead. And this emphasis on judging people and assessing people's worth and who they were based on what they did and how they lived in the world is something that again, as the inclusive argument would put forward, is completely at odds with any kind of argument that you must be descended from a very specific ethnic group to do this practice. To be born into a specific family is an action that you have no choice or input in. Um, We all come into the world more or less in the same way and with the same amount of agency as to who it is that we are born to. And in this way, this kind of meritocracy and emphasis on individual worth based on their actions is something that in the inclusive practice is at odds with what we see in folkish practice, which explicitly discriminates not based on what you've done or what kind of person you are, but whether or not you pass a paint swatch test. Now, these are all a good solid foundation for inclusive practice, but it becomes necessary, I think, to take it to the next level. And this is where the radical argument begins to diverge from other forms of inclusivity. And this is a divergence that is not one necessarily of opposition, but rather of what you could almost describe as yes ands, along with a slight no but thrown in there as well and you could say that this argument begins from a deeply held idea and construct and force it's all these things and more at the heart of heathenry known as weird this word is often translated as fate and rendered in more superficial understandings of Norse practice as being something similar to, like, say, God's plan or destiny being fixed by greater powers. But, and I'll get into this a lot more in a later episode, as well as in an upcoming book, 
uh title is currently pending so watch this space the weird is a deeply interconnected and interactive understanding of reality under weird everyone's actions impact everyone else's potential and ability to act and live in the world in weird everything is deeply connected and everything is a product of the sum of not just my actions or the actions of the people immediately around me but of the actions of the people in my community and the whether we're talking spiritual or physical or of employment along with many others as well it is also impacted by other peoples and communities that those groups are in relationship with some of which who are on the other side of the world some of which are the powers of the world tree ranging from the mightiest of gods to the humblest of the vitir and everything in between and this deep interconnection is a key starting place for understanding the necessity of aggressively anti-fascist practice for weird argues we must be mindful of our actions and the consequences they have not just the immediate ones but the second and third order ones of how things ripple outward beyond yourself and in this way fascism and fascist cults like those who make up the bulk of the neo-volkish movement are devastating to all that they touch within weird not only do they cause direct harm to many people both within this community and outside of it that harm ripples outward through society it gnaws at the world like need hogs endless devouring of the roots of yggdrasil the world tree it denies potential and as these harms are perpetuated they grow and inspire and cause greater damage and as we are practitioners who must live within weird who all live within weird including the greatest of gods it is necessary to do all we can to build a weird that is truly healthy and sustainable for all and fascism makes that impossible these fascist groups and white nationalist groups make it clear they will not play nice with others and they will actively slash and burn their way to creating a world where only their vision is possible a vision of endless war suffering and the serpent of hatred eventually devouring itself and all those who grew from it and so spiritually and morally weird alone compels all to act and act in a way that makes the world better the second key point is one that draws from the history argument to an extent but delves deeper and this argument points to the long history of the peoples of scandinavia as well as neighboring germanic peoples 
being on the receiving end of empire militarism and uh, many of the predecessors as well as sources of inspiration for modern fascism whether you are describing the cheruski and other tribes of the rhineland resisting rome's bloody-handed slaving empire or the various peoples whether they were those who overthrew olaf trigvason and other would-be tyrants who came with cross in hand as well as others who struggled against the imposition of feudalism whether it came under the guise of christianity or in some kind of repackaged traditional spirituality we can see that this was a continuous struggle one that probably predates what is popularly referred to as the viking age and continued throughout it was a clash of different ways of living of different systems for organizing society as well as different forms of spirituality and modern fascism in many ways is the direct descendant of all those who carried cross and eagle as implements of destruction and oppression they glory and revel in this past and exalt it as a worthy example to follow if therefore this history is something to be honored then it makes sense not to side with those who would eventually and today in some quarters shout deus vault while they split the skulls of those whose only crime was seeking to live in a way that they felt was best for themselves and their communities but instead to side with those who they were assaulting to side with the peoples who struggled in many different ways to maintain a way of life that was while certainly in many ways flawed and many ways had its own problems including the massive slave trade which developed throughout the viking period nonetheless still represented something that was more consensual less based on dictate and fiat a system where warmongering kings could not only be overthrown but in fact according to the heimskringla on some occasions were overthrown by their own people and it is this example this resistance to feudalism and empire that is a key point of inspiration in radical practice it also follows that if the ancients were so strong in their resistance in the past or at least some of them anyway then we should do the same in the present and not just to the fascists within our community but to all within society this broader approach is by the way one of the things that sets the radical argument apart from the inclusive argument as and this is certainly only true of some and not true of all there is a tendency within inclusivity to limit focus solely to the heathen community in radical 
forms of inclusion and radical practice, we seek to oppose and displace all these forms of oppression and to recognize that so long as the forces of white supremacy and patriarchy and all these other things that feed fascism exist in the world, then there will continue to be fascists within heathenry. And only by opposing it both within our community and without can we effectively dismantle this. And the final element is a question of harm. From the radical anti-fascist perspective, fascism is inherently harmful to both its adherents and to its intended targets. If you are part of a marginalized community that is considered to be an undesirable or degenerate foe of the white nationalists, then you will be a target for harm and violence. But the element that tends to be left out in this discussion is how fascism is also often quite harmful to the fascists themselves. Many examples of successful fascist societies include periodic bloody purges of many, including those who were deemed loyal fascists one day, who are now out of favor with those in power for whatever reason, who lost a very high-stakes game of office politics to be devoured by the very monster they fed. And, of course, there is the ultimate question of what happens when an ideology that is built on violence and force and domination through brutality were to actually win. They would need someone to turn on. And this is not just a hypothetical. This exact dilemma is a thing that has led to quite a few white nationalists leaving the movement behind and becoming fierce opponents of it. It is this clear need for a new thing to prey on, this endless hunger that guarantees that anyone whose eyes are just slightly the wrong shade of blue or whose skin is just a little too dark or someone whose grandmother had an Italian last name. All these things are good enough reasons for a fascist to find themselves in the crosshairs of the people they saw as comrades. In fact, there's even some rather notorious examples of people who are once very highly placed within Stephen McNallan's folkish Asatru, who, uh, for crimes as simple as having children who, through their own voyages of growth and self-discovery, learned that they were queer, was a good enough reason to be expelled from positions of influence and power. That this is not just some abstract notion. This is a very real reality. And it is this continuous cycle of violence and harm, both to those outside of the fascist circle, as well as those who stand within it. That is a third key point of the radical argument for 
anti-fascist practice. It is simply not enough to say this thing, which we know is dangerous to everything within its grasp, to be allowed to exist as a coherent movement. And it must be actively opposed, both to prevent the harms that it is doing to its victims and to its adherents, but to ensure that those harms will never again come to anyone. And most importantly, to ensure that these movements never gain sufficient power to really enact their darkest fantasies and their most blood-soaked visions of victory through utter annihilation of anything they see as impure. It is the necessity of standing up to these dangers that urges radical way of fire and ice practice to go beyond inclusive values and move towards radical anti-fascist ones. Of course, this is not all that radical practice is. The core ideas of radical practice, at least as I see it, and I'm sure there are many who have their own spins and interpretations, can be found in my book, The Way of Fire and Ice, and are summed up as these five points. First, the radical way is a living tradition. This means, like many other forms of spirituality, it is always growing, changing, and adapting to meet the needs of its practitioners in the present day. Second, the past in radical practice is a source for inspired adaptation. What this means is, well, reconstruction is a desired goal and a desirable methodology in some ways, that the ultimate goal is to find ways to take pre-modern ideas and practices and best adapt them to the present. This is, of course, directly related to this concept of living tradition and emphasizes that what we are doing is part of a new revived practice. We are not and never could claim to be part of an unbroken line stretching back to antiquity, we are instead people who draw inspiration from this and inspiration from these powers in the present day. Third, these practices must serve people's needs in their daily lives and never be a tool for wielding power over others. The goal of radical practice is as much as possible to revive pre-Christian Norse spirituality in a way that serves the needs of people. And anything that is used to justify power or domination over others must be questioned and, if necessary, even opposed. Fourth, as was discussed a bit earlier, radical 
Norse paganism, radical heathenry, however you want to call it, is open to all who feel it speaks for them and treats all people with dignity and respect. And that second part is, by the way, part of how we argue Nazis absolutely not welcome. One can only be part of this community if you are truly treating the other members, and especially the marginalized members, with the dignity and respect that all living beings deserve. Pure and simple. Fascism, as I've discussed before and we will definitely discuss again later, rejects this notion. And this is why fascists and white nationalists are absolutely not welcome in this practice. Fifth and finally, this practice calls on practitioners to be active members of their communities, to live modern life as fully as possible through the lens of the way of fire and ice. Our way is one that urges people to go out and make better weird in the world, to be better people in the world, and to find ways to lift up and empower others in the world as much as possible. This does not, by the way, mean that we are missionaries or that we seek to proselytize or anything like that. Rather, what this is to say is this does not start and stop in ritual. This is a spirituality that is lived in every waking moment of your life and probably many of the slumbering ones as well. There is, of course, quite a bit more at work, but those are the five points that define radical practice then there are within that broad ranges of interpretation and viewpoints and discussion. There are different levels to which people engage in mystical practice, um, different forms of rune work and save, as well as different ways that people approach the gods and the other powers. But ultimately, it is those five points, those points of unity, that make at least this form of radical practice what it is and define how it functions. Now, we are starting to come up on the hour mark, which is the time slot more or less for this podcast. So I would like to thank you for listening. It's great to have you on board for what is going to be a fairly interesting and exciting journey. Again, if you like what you're hearing and want advance release access, as well as other perks and benefits, as well as to help support this effort, please throw $5 into the Patreon at patreon.com slash waywardwanderer. And all of that said, I hope you enjoyed this episode and are looking forward to what's coming next. This has been the Wayward Wanderer, wishing you safe travels and good luck. If you want to find out more about Radical Heathen Practice, head on over to onblackwings.com 
where you can find articles, classes, resources, and more. This podcast was created and produced by Ryan Smith. Thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.